First Corinthians 13, eight. I only want to read the first phrase. Love never fails. God bless you. Please be seated. You may be dismissed. No. <laughs> Just kidding. I mean, that would be enough if you just knew that, right? Love never fails. We're in the middle of a series of messages on relationships, revive relationships. That's the overarching theme for the month of February. And I preached on revive relationships from the last verses of the Old Testament about a family revival. We had youth week and then on the 18th on Sunday, I preached on fight for family. If you're not here Sunday, uh, always, if you go back and listen to messages, this is winter break for a lot of schools. And as people come and go with schedules, I trust that you try to catch up Uh, when I'm not in church for whatever reason. I do try to go back and listen or watch the messages. So I stay tuned in with what's being said from the Lord through his word uh, in church on Wednesdays. Uh, Two weeks ago, I spoke on reconciliation, the biblical principles of reconciliation. Last Wednesday night, I I spoke on reviving marriage. And tonight, I want to go through 1 Corinthians 13, uh, the theme, love never fails. So we believe, um, according to the scriptures and by experience, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That the very words are God-breathed and that not one jot or tittle, those are tiny punctuation marks in the Hebrew, none of that will pass away till all of that is fulfilled. God is meticulous about fulfilling his word. So we believe in the, in the truth that every word of the Bible is inspired in its original writings. But it's also true that not only is every verse Uh, anointed by God, but its address is also placed there by God. Every verse is set in a context of scripture. There's some passages of the Bible, like portions of Proverbs, where a verse may just stand alone. It may be a pithy statement, and you can just read that one statement, and and it stands alone like that. Uh, It may not be connected. But most often, a verse lives in a neighborhood of thought. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter for a very good reason. But I want to look in the neighborhood in which 1 Corinthians 13 resides for a few minutes and then go through this chapter. Uh, I'm not sure I've ever walked through 1 Corinthians, at least in over a decade for sure. Um, And I just started from scratch in this message because that's what I wanted to do. Uh, the relationship in roles of husbands and wives is in 1 Corinthians 11. So I want to start in 11, go through 14. I'll do it in a summary fashion. We're not going to drill very deep. 1 Corinthians 11. Husband, wife, roles, headship, and our relationship to Christ in the church. Uh, the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. And then he gives the application of that. In, in our appearance, men have short hair, women have long, uncut hair, 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen. So the first half of 1 Corinthians 11 talks about relationships, husbands, wives, the relationship to God, gender distinction, gender role, all of that. The second part of 1 Corinthians 11 deals with communion, but it's really set off by Paul addressing the Corinthians for the divisions that exist among them. And then we go to church, uh, and there was communion. There would be like a mad dash. It would be like the old-fashioned blue light special for the communion table. And some people got there first and just consumed everything they could, and others were in the back and didn't get anything at all. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 11. In verse 20, he says, when you come together, therefore, to one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. That's not the primary reason you go to church. And he tells them that uh, you need to discern the Lord's body. And I think that's multiple applications, the body of Christ in communion, you know, the 
broken the body, the shed blood that's represented by the bread and fruit of the vine. Uh, but then also the body of Christ. You're trampling over the body of Christ, the church, to get to the body of Christ, the communion supper. There's something wrong with that. And you have to trample over your brothers and sisters uh, to try to get what you think you want from God. So I want you to just see this little theme, 1 Corinthians 11. And he closes the chapter by saying uh, that eat at home, come to church, to come to church. And then he said, and the rest I'll set in order when I come. He said, there's some other things that we need to talk about. And when I get there in person, I'll handle that stuff. That's kind of a, a father. He tells them, you don't have very many fathers in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 is the beginning of three chapters related to spiritual gifts. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 on the screens, I think they're working, right? Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. So the purpose of 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 are that people that we would not be ignorant about spiritual gifts. There's a lot of content committed to dealing with spiritual gifts. And he tells us that there are diversities of gifts. There are differences of ministries. There are diversities of operations. But all of this is given by God to profit the whole body. So then he goes through the the nine gifts of the spirit. He delineates them and explains all of that in chapter 12. Then chapter 13, sandwiched between, obviously, 12 and 14, is the love chapter, and I'll come back to that. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul now drills down into instructions about the use of spiritual gifts. And he spends a better part of chapter 14 talking about the use, misuse, proper usage, abuse of of the gift of tongues, interpretation, prophecy, um, how it should be used in a church at the most two, two, at the most three. And, and I don't have a lot of that in my notes. I'm not really trying to teach on first Corinthians 14, but a couple of verses, verse 33, he said, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. So he said, I'm writing this to you, not just to address spiritual gifts, but to address confusion, to address relationships, to talk about some of the things that are disrupting the life of the church. Verse 39, wherefore brethren covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues, but all things be done decently and in order. We've got to get this right. So people in the church, especially those who are new or who are unbelievers when they walk in, we don't want this to be a lot of chaos. And that he said, when it's time to minister the word of God, I'm not going to stand up and just speak in tongues to you. I'm going to speak in a language that you can understand. There's a time for tongues and interpretation and prophecy. There's a time for ministry of the word of God and worship and the other components. So there are themes and sub themes in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. But, but I wanted you to see there's a, there's a common thread of Paul dealing with relationships in 11 through that headship, through communion, chapter 12. And I didn't go in very deep in this, but in, in 12, he says, we need one another. We're part of the body of Christ. We're interdependent. You can't say you don't need the other brothers and sisters. It's about relationships, not just spiritual gifts. And 14 is also about respecting one another, doing this decently in order. So there is a common thread of relationships woven throughout the fabric of 1 Corinthians 11 through 14 and all throughout the Bible. But I especially wanted you to see the placement, the kind of the address uh, scripturally where 1 Corinthians resides. So when we go to 1 Corinthians 13, we're not reading it or studying it in a vacuum. We're studying it studying it in its context of the passages that surround it. So many of these things you'll know because 1 Corinthians 13 is popular among all Christians. It may not be practiced, but it is popular. And uh, it is known as the love chapter. Last Wednesday night, I talked about 
couple of Greek words that are used in the Bible, the New Testament, phileo, the brotherly love, Philadelphia, and agape or agapeo. I'm not a great scholar. We'll have Dr. Brickle with us in a few weeks, and he is literally a scholar. Uh, But it really refers to the love of God and our love for God to be our love for neighbors, for enemies, it's used in different contexts. It could be our love for truth and righteousness. And it really speaks of an unconditional love. That's what God's love is. If you're reading the King James, the word charity will be there because it is trying to point to the type of love that is being addressed in 1 Corinthians 13 is the agape or agapeo love of God that is not self-seeking. And we'll see that. Spelled out in 1 Corinthians 13. So it is somewhat of this unconditional sacrificial love. The love that God is. The love that God shows. A love of choice. Not emotion. Amen. Very selfless in the highest form of love. Paul said in Romans 5 and 8 that God demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The unconditional Love of God toward us that was sacrificial in the way it was demonstrated. And this is the kind of love that 1 Corinthians 13 addresses. This love is not a feeling. It is not weak. And it is not referred to physical intimacy. We learn in 1 Corinthians 13 that this kind of love, it never fails. And it is the greatest attribute in a Christian life for it lasts forever and ever and ever. So we're going to walk through 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1. How about that? Logical, right? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, charity, if we're reading, this is New King James, I have become sounding brass or a clanging symbol. I'm just making noise. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So I want to take those verses together and make some observations about them. That gifts without love equals nothing. Gifts without love undermines the goal of the gospel. For God so loved the world, he he loved us to save us. And if gifts are used to divide us, and they're not in this church. We don't have an issue with the misuse of gifts here. Uh, then it misses the mark. And then he says, I could have spiritual understanding, knowledge and faith without love, and it is nothing. Have you ever known anyone who knew a lot, was really smart, and they could quote a lot of scripture, but they just didn't seem to exude the love of God? I've said this a couple times in two or three contexts lately, but someone said one time that, some people are like porcupines. They have a lot of good points, but they're really hard to fellowship. So you can have understanding and be deep. And it's amazing how people like this, they don't understand why nobody wants to be around them because they're not interested in you revving your intellectual horsepower or showing how smart you are. The love, knowledge, understanding is great. Faith is great. But without love, it's nothing. I can understand all mysteries. And we like, isn't that amazing? If somebody could come up and unpack all the mysteries of the Bible for you. But yet, you'd get that feeling that there's something missing. Maybe the use of that is more about them than it is about you. I've heard people minister in different contexts, when you sense that they love the people they were ministering to, and sometimes people just love the the act of ministering, they love teaching, preaching, you know, the joy of that, and 
It doesn't have love. It's nothing. And then this faith, he said, though you have faith so that you could remove mountains. That's pretty powerful. I would take some of that. I mean, we need miracles, right? We believe in that. But we need to make sure that the motive. So I feel like these verses address the motive for ministry. That we check our ego at the door of the church. That we make sure that as God uses us, that God is using us in a way that reaches people. There is a tone of the gifts of the spirit. You know, I was taught when I was young that if you preach on hell, you need to make sure you preach on hell in a way that people don't think they wish you're going there. You preach on hell with tears in your eyes. You don't preach on hell as if you wish everybody in the congregation would go there soon. Maybe you had a bad day. That's not a reason to preach on hell. So he says, ministry, the motive of ministry has to be love. Love is the greatest. It's enduring. And it has to be at the fabric of who we are and why we do what we do. God weighs the heart. He tries the will or the reins, the Bible says. And in verse 3, we're in the middle of a capital campaign. And I appreciate what everybody's doing. I've, I've not asked Meaty to re, uh, show these verses. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. And though I give my body to be burned. Now, if you emptied all of your assets and gave every penny to feed the poor. And as I was studying this in the original It's like your kind of hand feeding the poor. It's got this extreme word picture of you've given everything you've got and you're like Mother Teresa. You're there among the lowest of the lowest in India, you know, helping those people as she did in her life. But he says you can give everything you have to give away and then you can even give your body to be burned. And there's there's a lot of questions about what does that mean? Because, you know, being martyred through being burned at that time may not have been done. It was done through history. But nonetheless, he's giving this example, this extreme example, that you're going to die for a cause. Now, there are people who die for causes in our world. But they do it out of hate. You may say they love their cause, but they do it because they hate you. They, they fly airplanes into the World Trade Center out of hate. They give their body for something they hate, to something that they hate. And maybe it's motivated by a love of something that's false. But but Paul says, God says through him, that if I give everything I've got, and if I give my life to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. When I read that, I'm like, man, I, I really don't want to miss the mark. If I'm gonna If I'm going to lay down my life, I would like to make sure that my motives are right. Amen. Amen. That my motives for ministry are pure. And he gives these extreme examples of sacrificial giving and martyrdom to make the point of how important love is. Now, you know, the Bible never advocates like this or that, right? It doesn't say you can have the gift of tongues or love. You can have the gift of prophecy or love. You can have understanding knowledge or love. You can have sacrifice or love. We believe in Atlanta West because the Bible teaches it that we believe the gift of tongues and love go together. That prophecy and love go together. That you can have understanding knowledge and faith and love. And you can have sacrificial giving and love and you should. And I'm going to throw this in there. You can have inward holiness and outward holiness at the same time. You don't have to make a choice. So don't ever let anybody try to pigeonhole you or just take one side of the equation and make that who we are. We believe in this and that even in the context of 1 Corinthians 13. I just thought it was a good time to remind us about an underlying Philosophy of ministry at Atlanta West called this and that. All right. And it exists somewhere in cyberspace and past messages. All right. So the point of this passage 
is not to discourage spiritual gifts. We need God to operate through us. And when you say spiritual gifts, some people just think that's tongues and interpretation or prophecy. We need the gifts of the spirit to operate among us. Faith, the working of miracles, the gifts of healing, discerning of spirits, word of knowledge, word of wisdom. We need faith. We need the gifts of the spirit to operate among us by and through love. Amen. But again, this passage is to address the motives. Now, we can hear from God to the word, his word, preaching, teaching, the Holy Ghost speaking through us. We can hear from God through the spiritual gifts. God can speak to us. And if you read through verses 1 through 3, you realize that God does use all of those giftings, but it should be done in love. Now, now, how do you demonstrate this love? Do you hug a tree, save a whale, adopt a puppy, um, what is, love, what is love really like? How do you know? I'm glad you asked that because 1 Corinthians 13 tells us starting in verse 4. So this is attributes of love. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. So love suffers long. And is kind. And I want to try to just give some insight into these pithy phrases. They're very powerful. Love puts up with difficult situations. Not for a minute. A day or a week. The Bible said be patient until the coming of the Lord. That's a long time to, to suffer, right? Love does that. It suffers long. And while it's standing in line or sitting in traffic. It's kind at the same time. You can suffer long and be mean about it. Be a grouch. Be a jerk. Amen? And um, that's what love does. Love suffers long and is kind. Now, in this particular section of 1 Corinthians 13, there are two positive traits that are said here. And then there are seven negatives after it. Five of those you can apply Directly to things that were going on in the Corinthian church. And we'll go through them. So love does not. Love does not envy. Now this means that love doesn't have ill will toward other people. But probably, you know, when you study a word. I like to do word studies and get the original meaning. And like to triangulate it with various translations. And kind of get all the good you can. It doesn't mean that what you're reading in the King James or New King James is not accurate, but I like to kind of get all the good out of that verse. And, and probably it means here that love does not create a rivalry or competition. Now, when I, when I thought of that and read that, and then I read back through what I know about 1 Corinthians, like, oh, yes. Paul is saying this is a common problem in Corinth. He starts at the beginning of the book. There's envying, strife. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Paulus. I'm of Christ. There's divisions and strife, and you guys can't get along. And Paul says that love doesn't do that. Now, you might have your favorite preacher, but love doesn't say, well, I'm a follower of Cephas. I'm a follower of Paulus. You can have people that you think preach better, you enjoy their ministry, but what you really say is this is the body of Christ. And I love Jesus Christ. We're all in this together. And we're not going to create a rivalry. Paul said, you know, in essence, who is Apollos? Who is Cephas? Who is Christ? We're all, we're just ministers. We're all on the same team. Don't divide us. And don't you get divided over us. Because we're together. Amen. Love doesn't take a side in the church or the kingdom of God. Love does not create rivalry. Love does not envy. Then love, and the New King James says, love does not parade itself. King James vaunteth not itself. This doesn't mean pole vaulting, but it doesn't push itself up to kind of be noticed. Uh, it's a rare word in the Greek, and it literally means to behave as a braggart or to be a windbag. 
Love does not brag. Love doesn't boast. It suggests something that love does not do. Love does not have self-centered actions. And this inordinate desire to draw attention to yourself above everyone else. Love doesn't blow the trumpet to get attention. When you give or pray or fast or serve because you're here functioning out of a selfless love. Love is selfless, not self-serving. So love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. It doesn't have overtones of arrogance. Amen. That's how they were in Corinth. And love does not like that. Verse 5. Love does not behave rudely, unseemly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Phrase by phrase. Does not behave rudely, unseemly. And the essence of what Paul is saying is that love is not rude. It doesn't behave shamefully or disgracefully. It seems, you know, in our culture, the Bible talks about people being fierce and crude. You know, back in the day, I'm, I'm getting older, but I'm not super duper old. When it was not culturally accepted for women to be Crude women. But in the church, crudeness and rudeness doesn't demonstrate this kind of love. Love is not rude. Amen? I mean, that doesn't mean you're not under conviction over this, but you just agree with the Bible, right? Now, Paul talks about behaving yourself unseemly, and when commentary said that, this may point back to the shame of 1 Corinthians 11 of the women who were not honoring their head, their husband, and Christ by shaving their heads and not being in their proper role. They were unseemly. And then if you think about the rudeness in 1 Corinthians 11, same chapter, of these people rushing the communion table, kind of elbowing their way to the front, how rude is that? Have you ever been in line and somebody cut the line? Doesn't that bother you? Now, this is when you have to go back and love suffers long and is kind. You have to go back a couple phrases to deal with what's going on in your head. The other day I was, I was traveling and uh, I don't remember, maybe from the funeral. And I was on the airplane and there was a guy behind me and he really, really wanted to get off that plane really bad. And my wife will tell you, I'm like the road captain, you know. I'm going to stand there and I'm going to let everybody go in front of me and help them get their bags. You know, I'm in charge. I have a badge that says row captain of whatever row I'm on. And I'm going to make sure there's order in my row. And everybody's in my row is going to go in front of me. And everybody back there is like tough luck, you know. They're going first. And that way we're going to get off this plane a lot better. Well, this particular guy, and I just had to say, it's not worth it. Don't say a thing. To stand here. But I thought, you know, forget. But what about all the other people around you that you're not oblivious to, but you're just determined that you're going to be first. You're going to get your way. Now, if you have a flight to make, I'm not being ridiculous here. But you think about those people in Corinth that are literally rushing to the communion table. Maybe it's the love feast of dinner. And eating everything and knowing that somebody never even got anything. That's what love does not do. It is not rude. Does it behave in unseemly ways? None of these are kindred concepts, right? Because it's the nature of love. Love does not seek its own. Its own honor. Um, like Communion and all of that. Uh, in some ways, that's what Christian love is all about. That's what Jesus Christ did. Who 
being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a servant. You think of God Almighty reducing himself to a single cell, his birth, his life, his humiliation on the cross. He became the servant of all. He did not seek his own. Remember when Paul said, I'm sending, I think he was talking of Timothy, and not in my notes, but he said, every man seeks his own. Everybody's out for their own good, but not him. He's going to come and he's going to love you and he's going to minister to you for your sake. Love does not seek. And so now in our culture, for many, many decades, the, the big pursuit is I want to find myself. I've got to find myself. Back in the day, they said, Everybody who wanted to find themselves went to Boulder, Colorado to find themselves there at University of Colorado. You're going to find yourself in the mountains and out in the wild and go to the Northwest, you know, and find yourself. Well, the Bible teaches that if you, if you save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, you're going to find it. And I have learned that you find yourself by serving. You find who you are. By finding how God gifted you and serving there. Love does not seek its own. Love seeks the benefit of everyone else. And then this next one, we really ought to dismiss on this one, is not provoked. New Living Translation, other translations, not easily provoked, I think is probably true. But New King James says not provoked at all. But if you read it and study it, not easily angered. Now, by the writings of Paul in First and Second Corinthians, it does not seem that this was a big issue in Corinth. You don't have Paul addressing this like he did other problems that existed in the church there. But I just want to say, because this is here, is not easily provoked that if you have a short fuse... If you have a hot temper, this is your verse. Now, there are things that can trigger all of us. That doesn't necessarily mean that we should have, like if you're thinking of firearm, a hair trigger where it doesn't take much pressure at all to pull the trigger. Um. It's not a compliment if you're like that. And it is not a characteristic of God. I was thinking about Israel provoking the Lord to anger. And there are, I think, three places there uh, where Israel provoked the Lord to anger. I didn't put them in my notes. And then some people would say, well, don't you remember that Jesus drove them out of the temple? Yes, he did. Turned over the tables of the money changers. But you'll also read that he plowed a whip. He didn't fly off in a fit of rage. He methodically wove a whip. And then he went and cleansed his father's house. And said, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. And you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus did not just freak out in the moment. He was not short-tempered. The Bible says of the Lord in Psalm 86 and 5, and the Lord is good, ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon him. The Lord in Psalm 86, 15, he's full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. Psalm 103, 18, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. Almost the same words in those three different Psalms. And that's how God is. God is long-suffering. He's not easily provoked. One of the most perplexing verses to me is when God tells Abraham, your descendants are going to go down in Egypt. They're going to spend 400 years there. Fourth generation, I'm going to bring them out. And then he says for the, uh, for the Amorites, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Like those guys down in Canaan land are wicked and when you read through all the things they did, the idol worship, sacrificing their children. But the Lord said, you know, it's going to take maybe four or five hundred years and then I'm going to destroy them. 
the days of Noah, while the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. First, second Peter three and nine refers to that ark flood. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. Now, the context of this is, is different than this long suffering idea, but it tells how God is. But his long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So they were thinking that God's never going to do anything, that he doesn't keep his word, and he's not going to act. They're saying, like, God, push the nuclear button now. The apostle Peter writes, God's just not like that. And I found that when I need mercy, I, I love this verse. When somebody does me wrong, I don't like this verse so much. I want God to have a hair trigger on his wrath, right? Love thinks no evil. Now, you can read different translations. You can cross-reference this. You can check my theology here. But the word thinks in the Greek, there's a couple different things. But it can mean calculate. And some translations say... Love keeps no score of wrongs. And you'll see this on posters and things, you know, plaques. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It does not reckon the evil. Just as God did not reckon our sins against us, love does not keep score against people who do you wrong. In God's world, it's not three strikes in your out. In God's world, it's not forgive them seven times. In God's world, it's 70 times seven, or perhaps that means times without number. Love keeps no score of wrongs. I've shared this little story before. It wasn't really in my notes, but I think I will since there's no music tonight. Um, I had a friend years ago, a friend of my wife and me, uh, a lady, she she had a, a, a boyfriend, and you know, they were adults, but... This guy just kept on doing dumb things, you know. And how many of you are old enough to know what an SNH green stamp is? Let me see your hand. All the confessors here. Okay. You got a book. My mom might have done this. I, I, I really wasn't in the generation that did it, but I did watch my mom. And I'm not trying to say I'm young because of that. You got a little book and it had these pages and you'd go to this grocery store. It's kind of like points or miles or whatever, but they're stamps. And you come home and lick the stamp and stick it in the book and you fill that page and that page. And when you fill the book up, am I right? Am I, am I doctrine right here so far? And when your book got full, then you could go to the store and you could give it and you would exchange it. You could buy something with it, right? It's the same idea that back in the day, they were the stamps. And, and, and our friend said to me one day, you know, so, so-and-so keeps doing things to me and I just keep putting stamps in the book. And when it gets full... And he's, you know, like, he's out of here then. And being the very kind, nice person I am, I said, wow, you know, that's really against the Bible. <laughs> because and I, I referred to this verse, that love doesn't keep a score. Now, this message tonight is brought to you not about marriage. If it happens to have some application to marriage, or family, or friendship, if the shoe fits, go ahead and wear it tonight. Last week was about marriage, and I intentionally didn't do a second marriage message. So I, I pondered it, prayed about it. But I thought, you know, this is pretty good. It'll work. It'll probably maybe cross over a couple little areas here for people. Love keeps no score of wrong. So when you say, you always do that, you never, that means you've kept score. Now, you may not know it's 742, but when you say always, you're saying you've got a pattern of that behavior, and I remember, and I've kept score. And whether that's true or not, that they always or never, those are like gunpowder words that do not heal or reconcile, they separate. And there's no real place for them in a person who's living by love. All right. Ready to move to verse 6? Everybody's fine. Like painful. This is like dental surgery, right? 
Sorry to all the dental hygienists in the building. Verse 6, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Now, these, these two thoughts go together, so I'm going to take them together. Side, two sides of the same reality. Evil and truth, right? And it could be the gospel and opposing the gospel, right and wrong. You know, I'm preaching Sunday, I believe I said, quit liking what God hates. You don't rejoice in evil. You don't rejoice in sin. You don't like what's unlikable to God. You do not rejoice in iniquity, but you rejoice when truth wins out. You rejoice when truth triumphs. That's what love does. You don't take delight in evil. You don't entertain yourself with evil. That's a holiness lesson, but it's also a love issue. Love of God, loving like God. And love rejects evil. Love rejects gossiping because that's rejoicing over things that are not so good. Love is not glad when someone fails or falls. Jonathan and Saul were killed. David said, publish it not in Gath, tell it not in Ascalon. Let's keep this dirty laundry in the house. Because we don't want the heathen to know that we've got this big mess here. Let's just hold this. And the Bible is going to get a little more of this idea in a minute. But not gladden when someone fails. Love stands on the side of right and the gospel and mercy and justice even when someone disagrees. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So to say love bears all things, it's sort of, you know, you can say love puts up with everything. And there's a context of that, that love, though, you know, when the Bible said if you cover a transgression, that doesn't mean cover up. It doesn't mean sweep it under the rug. It's something that you just... Don't disclose to everyone to the hurt of that person. So I'm not talking about reporting a crime or a sin or sexual abuse of a minor. I'm not talking about that because that would be wrong. It would be illegal and immoral. But if you're the person who's got to tell everything that happens and you kind of look forward to it, you're not holding that. That's what bears all things. Love just kind of contain some stuff to not let it out for the protection of that person. And I think the church as well. It's not denial, bottling up like that. That's not what it means. Okay. Love believes all things. Now, I don't think this means you're gullible because you're wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. But you begin with a bias of trust. You start there. The lens through which you look at people in the body of Christ is you're my brother, you're my sister, and I believe in you, I trust you, we're going to heaven together. And if they prove otherwise, I think forgiveness, for example, is immediate. Trust takes time. We should earn trust every day. If we break trust, we should earn it back and it will take longer. We should be discerning, but I just can't get this out of the Bible. Love believes. Believes the best. And love hopes all things. Love just has this hope that things are going to turn out good. Well, what about that person that didn't turn out good? But ultimately, I have hope that God's in control and it's going to be all right. If you're Joseph thrown in the pit, down in the prison, forgotten, lied on, you just have this hope. God gave me a dream and I trust that it's going to come true. Love hopes all things. Amen. Love never ceases to have faith. Love never ceases to have hope. And then love endures all things. That means to put up with everything. It goes through trials and it perseveres through all the difficulty. Love has a tenacity to it. And then verse 8. Love never fails. 
But whether they are prophecies, they will fail. They'll end. Whether they are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. But love never fails. Now, uh, we're going to just look at this. It needs to fall away, to fail, to cease to be needed. But then I want to do 9 and 10 to kind of give context to that. For we know in part, the smartest person in the world knows in part. And we prophesy in part. When I was younger, I thought if a person prophesied, they probably knew everything. But there's a word. There's a, a piece of knowledge that God gives you. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And all of us operate with a limited knowledge. God may give you a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, uh, but it is not all wisdom and all knowledge. He said we see through a glass darkly. We can see, but we can't see everything perfect. We know in part, we prophesy in part, we all have a partial knowledge of how we work because we are not God. And that's good to remember that, right? Verse 11. When I was a child, he's now giving an example of how we know in part and what it's going to be like when we get to heaven. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. But now we see through a mirror dimly. I think in a mirror dimly, King James threw a glass darkly. But then we're not going to have a really goofy mirror, fogged up mirror. We're going to see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. That's a pretty amazing thought. That in heaven, we're going to have perfect knowledge. Verses 10 through 12, we get a glimpse of what it will be like in heaven. When that which is perfect has come. And that which is in part has been done away. I want to take a moment here. This message is not about the gifts of the spirit. But some people arguing against tongues. Well, they say tongues will cease. I know what the Bible says, but when? Not now. When you get to heaven, they won't be needed anymore. Nor will prophecy or any of the other gifts of the spirit. Verse 13. And now... Abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So just a couple of comments about faith and love. Faith, without faith it is impossible to please God, right? It's impossible to please him. He that cometh to God must believe. But he is, and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You've got to believe he exists, and that if you seek him, he'll reward you. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And faith is believing that God will do what he said he would do. He'll keep his word. He will never lie. But then the Bible said in Galatians 5 through 6 that faith works by love. So while faith is so powerful, it is actually activated by love. So it's dependent on love to operate. So what about hope? Hope is just not like some wishful thinking, but hope is a worldview that we have. I have hope in Christ. If we did not have hope in Christ, right? We would be of all men most miserable. If in this life only we had hope in Christ, we'd be of all men most miserable. Our hope is what buoys us, keeps us going when the world is sinking around us. I have hope that in the end we win. I have hope that nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I have hope. That though, as Job said, skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I'll see God. Job believed in a bodily resurrection. We have hope like that, amen? And that's a very powerful truth. And Romans 5 and 5, now hope does not disappoint, maketh not ashamed in the King James. Because the love of God has been poured out on our hearts by the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So we have this hope. Because of the love of God. So hope is dependent on love. It's triggered or born of love. Now by its faith, hope, love. But love is the greatest. Now you can read all kinds of things about why is love the greatest attribute. Is it superior to faith and love? I mean, faith and hope, perhaps it is. But think about this. 
In heaven, will you need faith? No. Because everything you've had faith for, you will have. You will have. In heaven, will you need hope? You will not need hope in heaven. Romans says, Romans 8, 24, we were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. That's the New Living Translation to make it quick and simple. So you hope for stuff you don't have. But once you get it, you don't need to hope for it anymore. And when you get to heaven, you won't need to hope for streets of gold gates of pearl and eternity in the presence of God. You will have what you had faith for. You will have what you had hope for. But forever and ever and ever, love will remain throughout all of eternity. Love is the greatest and love never fails. Let's stand. Love is the essence of the nature of God. 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us how to allow love to consume us and to guide us, to control our relationships with other people. It's in a neighborhood. Don't forget the neighborhood it's in. Reminds us also of how much God loves us. He's the embodiment of love. And everything I've just said about love, everything I've just taught us about love, God already does that. Because that's who he is. If you have a few moments and you can pray without music, if you want to join me at the altar for a few minutes. And we're just going to thank God for his word. We're going to ask the Lord to help us be filled with his love and to demonstrate Christ-like love in our lives. Amen. Let's just thank the Lord for his power, for his word, for his mercy in our lives. I thank you, Lord, that you suffer long and you are kind to us. I thank you, Lord, that you've never sought your own, but you came to seek our own welfare. I thank you, Lord, that you are not easily provoked. You've been patient with me, Lord. You've been patient with us so many times. I thank you, Lord, that you have borne. You've kept things, God, that you knew about us, but you loved us and you believed in us and you hoped for the best in us and you've endured through it all. I thank you, Lord, that love never fails. Love never fails. It never gives up. Thank you, God, that your love never runs out on us, Lord, that love never fails.